Welcome back to Possibility Now with Ethan Hughes. I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. This is part two of Ethan's truly incredible and epic life story. We also go down many delicious rabbit holes, ranging from the challenges of creating and sustaining communities to the vital importance of discovering our soul's purpose. So without further ado, let's dive in. Speaking of your partner, Sarah, do you want to um, share a little bit about how the two of you met? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just noticing grief come up because we're really struggling right now to see and honor each other. And I love her so much. I um, thinking back of like our connection just brings up sadness and um, yeah, just honoring that. No matter what path we choose, this real work of like healing our partnerships and our families is like, it's a deep work. Um, but I, um, everyone told me I was going to be a monk now. My girlfriend left me and um, uh, friends in Gloucester would be like, oh yeah, you're real desirable. Like I give everything away. If we go out to eat, I'm going to bring a homeless person. Like you're done, you know, in dating category. So that was my fear. Um, I um, really enjoyed partnership and sharing love and life with people. And so I take it on that story. So I um, I was at Aprovecho and I saw this woman come in and she had a, I could tell it was a homemade dress on and was had an armful of leeks. And her, she laughed. I didn't know she was a trained opera singer and went to the public high school in Houston for performing arts. And I was like, whoa, my friend, Miguel elbowed me and was like, dude, like, don't stare. You're like a stalker. I was just captivated. And I tried to go. I uh, She was living at Lost Valley Educational Center. I was at Aprovecha Research Center, another permaculture center, doing a lot of uh, healing, somatic healing work there. And so my I knew Arno, who was over there. So I tried to approach her several times, and I couldn't. Um and she disappeared and like, oh, I'll never see her again. Fast forward three weeks and we, with Aprovecho in Lost Valley, would do a Beltane celebration, kind of going back to our roots of European mysticism, having our own ritual of Beltane in the Gaelic Celtic tradition. So we we're up in the National Forest and we had a big pig roast and everyone would be up there for the weekend, jumping in the freezing river naked and dressing up as minstrels and all kinds of stuff. And um, I was on the sacred theater team and I saw Sarah and I was like instantly felt giddy and didn't know anything about her. But that night I ended up in the sacred theater. I was spraying and I shaved my whole body and jumped out of a tree naked. And my friend Miguel, the same one who elbowed me, threw me a flaming staff and I talked about spring and my dear friend Peter Hugman was death and we had, it was improv theater and I ended up going naked across the field with like 80 people following me and lit the big bonfire for Beltane and Sarah was in the crowd and um, I then had dressed up as an elf because we had this other group that would grab the people of the elf kingdom and talk about what their journey was and do kind of like mystical readings like tarot and old European divination and 
So she thought I was three different people. And I really, again, was too shy. And then at like two in the morning, I left the fire and went to my tent that I was sharing with my friend Kevin. And Kevin that night had got back together with his friend Devin. I was like, I'm in the tent with Devin. Do you mind? Devin's like, oh, there's a big Lost Valley tent with like 10 people in it. So at two in the morning, I unzip the tent. And the only person in the tent is Sarah. And I'm like, I woke her up. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I felt really like, oh, no. I said, I'll work it out. And I, my friend Melanie was leaving the fire. I'm like, Melanie, can I be in the tent with Corey and you? And she's like, fine. So I walked back and said, yeah, I found another tent. Sorry. And she's like, oh, it would have been nice to have company. So I run back and tell Melanie, I'm going to sleep in there. So I slept in the tent with her and I told her some myths. I'd done a lot of storytelling. And um, in the morning, asked her if she would come walk on the land with me. And she had kind of put off, put off, put off. And finally, on one of our first dates, we uh, took the bus and then biked to one of my favorite places on the coast in Oregon. When we got off the bus, there was a homeless man who was drunk who approached me. And I think somehow my energy carries that they feel it's safe. And so I'm kind of a magnet. Um, my last girlfriend would get really frustrated because the one time I'd take her out to eat, someone would come. I'd be like, come eat with us. So she left me. One of those was that reason. So here I was again. I think these moments come where you have to choose. So there's this woman I'm falling in love with, Sarah. And she uh we're about to have lunch and i and like a part of me was definitely going to say no sorry we can't help you another part just thought okay i am going to be a single monk so i said sure come you know would that be all right and sarah's sure and so yeah and he was also intoxicated so we shared a meal he hugged us and i was having a great experience and like what is sarah thinking and then we biked off to the camping area and she said like, this is one of the greatest dates I've ever been on. And in that moment, I was like, this is my beloved. And then um, the synergy of us, Sarah asked me the questions like, why do we need electricity? I'd, I'd live with solar panels. I'd never asked the question. Um, so she led me to these other pivot of changes of, wow, waking with the sun and living by candlelight. And it, it wasn't just the ecological, it was the transformation of moving slower in nighttime. So we, that that union began this whole ripple of um, seeking a place. She had done work uh, on the Diné Reservation, Navajo, doing service at Black Mesa and had been active and grew up in Houston and very um, diverse community. And so we were just like, had this vision of a experiment outside of, electricity and domination society that was outside of capitalism and it was like we both felt betrothed by the universe um, both exciting and terrifying so Sarah came into my life which um, led to the next deep adventure which was crossing the sea on a Polish freight boat full of non-GMO peas from Canada to Spain <laughs> um, to seek um our roots in the old world of like actually peasant culture and how they were living in the mountains simple instead of the risk of cultural appropriation or other things we were called back to our roots yeah go on <laughs> so you know we had a list of all these projects like zeg and um, other communities in europe and but 
really, I, I think that's one thing I'd say is like stay open. Adrian Marie Brown and Emergent Strategy talks about emergence is always happening. And I think the problem with the Western mind is we always have a plan. And that plan actually keeps us away from experiencing spirit or where we need to go because we have to keep to the plan. So we, um, the freight boat pulled up in Spain and dropped our bikes on the port and we biked off to our first place up in the mountains, electricity play, uh, free place that was only accessible by a footpath and donkey. And um, when we were there, uh, we were shared our vision. They're like, oh, you need to go to the Ark, the Larsh of Lanza de Vasta. They live with Gandhi and then brought this movement back to Europe in the 20s. And so thus the hunt for spirit started and we together by bike got each visit we became closer we went to ramanat where it was a bunch of road activists just moved up into the mountains with the peasants and lived without plastic and the it was inc the most incredible they were elemental they were just looped into the mountain world um and it was incredible he had worked in a factory for six years uh i'm sorry six months in two different factories just to see how dehumanizing it was and like i'm never going to make someone go into a factory for me and the whole like globalized kind of factory enslavement. So um, it was in, it was really uh, incredible. They called me Las Vegas because I had a headlamp and we would like um, experience what it was like for a European culture to live intact with the earth. What was missing for us was a spiritual component and uh, activist component. Like there were German and French, but where were the marginalized? So then we um, reached out to the ark and they were full for the whole s t a year. And they said, you can bike out here and if someone cancels, maybe you could be here. And we said, we took the risk. So we trained and biked out there. And then that day, uh, uh, a couple had canceled. So we walked into this place that was everything we had been dreaming that people in the U.S. said was impossible. We walked... Uh, half a mile through gardens hand grown and three tons of wheat by horses and we walked by rooms that were giving homes to Muslim families on the run during the uprisings in Paris and a place of sanctuary for uh, people being marginalized and we it was all done in the gift nothing was charged and hand car we went into a room and it was a hand carved chair and a hand woven uh, blanket on the window and we're like oh my gosh um, in welcoming 5,000 people a year. And meanwhile, there's groups going out, being arrested to block GMO food coming into France, facing 10-year prison sentences. And it just went on and on. We were like, how this is real. Like a movement, elders were living there and babies were living there. And uh, it just totally blew us away. Um, we felt like we walked into a whole new field of possibility, both in projects outside of capitalism, people giving sanctuary, people risking their lives for justice, people making beauty, hand-carved, carvings everywhere and everything made on the land and any and people had access, bringing bread to those who are needing food in the bigger cities. And um, we, had, we had walked into like what for me was another initiation of just like tasting what, you know, the beginning of what the world could look like where we all belonged. So I was just sharing about the arc and I realized a larger pattern I have seen with people 
seeking for that which is in their heart to be seen in the world that um it's a it's a dynamic moment like puppeteers you know they're like puppets and social justice where is it and then they find bread and puppet theater and they're like oh my gosh um and when we find that that's one path is that the universe shows us this possibility is real so when i went to the ark everyone on the west coast is like you can't run a sustainable forest with hand tools you can't just host anyone without charging money. You can't have a direct action team while growing all your own food. All these things the West Coast was telling me, it was proved a lack of imagination instantly. Um, and that, that, that then is such a, it's like coming home. We were both weeping that night. They were singing a song in four-part harmony. And Sarah loves music and that, the quote, beauty will save the world by... Um, I can never pronounce his name. Doskevsky. Yes. There goes my 820 on the SAT. Um, So we were both crying that night. We were weeping. Just like we would come home and the universe had shown like what was in your heart wasn't a lie. I like um, St. Teresa of Avila said, God will never put some goddess, however you hold it, love will never put something in your heart that isn't real. Like spirit doesn't play tricks that yearning is there for, for a reason and, and can happen. There's never a yearning that can't come to be. So I think the other path I want to mention, I think sometimes um, like after being at the Ark for a year, it wasn't everything we wanted. And I'll share briefly what those things were missing. So we then were called to create what we didn't know existed. And so there's two Arks. You find exactly what it is and you plug into it and come home. And the other piece is you come home to something close to it, but then you're given the energy to really bring forth into the world what, at least this moment, didn't exist. We're at that moment right now with COVID and the uprisings. All this stuff is falling down, and there's this opportunity for us to bring in what we've been yearning to bring in. So we're at the ARC. The ARC, in a real summary, has four. their whole philosophy is in a circle. And it's really simple. Re- healing the connection with yourself so there's no substances there and people do a lot of prayer and meditation and inner work and so in healing the connection to others so it was amazing at the table at the ark i'd be with tattooed anarchist germans with piercings everywhere at the same table as a franciscan monk in a robe it was the most diverse crossroads i had been in in my life where there could be activists that were drawn there because the ARC was, some people were facing 10 years in prison for scything GMO food coming into France, for example. And um, they're also really respected by deep contemplatives like Plum Village and Thich Nhat Hanh's group would come to do trainings there. And so um, this was c- connecting with others. So you're at the table with people who held a different position an anti-religious anarchist sitting with a Franciscan monk having a deep conversation and influencing each other. Uh, and then the third part is re-healing our connection with nature. So the Ark were very elemental. They grew three tons of wheat by horse. We put up 1,200 quarts of tomatoes in one year. Like incredible, you know, one whole room, one whole room full of sand with beets and carrots the scale of the food production was incredible four tons of potatoes in one root cellar and also nature trails and a lot of their celebrations were out in the woods all night we'd stay up all night on a cliff in the woods um so it's very 
um, cosmic, like it was Christian root, but all faiths were welcome and non-faiths. And so that connection of healing with nature, of like with our own hands, growing the food we need and having a relationship. And then the final one is healing our connection to the mystery, ancestors, spirit, God, goddess, Buddha nature, the Tao, however you call it, uh, the, the life force of many names, as they say at the Ark. And that was it. That was the integral map of healing those four. And if we healed those four, we would have uh, an actually functioning humanity. And if anyone was left out, we would have an atrophied part of ourselves. If we left out our connection to nature or we hyper focused on nature and we when we see this playing out, people who are leaving nature out, there's a loss and people are leaving people out like environmentalists that leave out the fact that there are indigenous and black people in our country who aren't even guaranteed food. You know, there's a there's a it, it's a beautiful vision. So that was the arc. And so there we were. I was I was needing 400 pounds of bread in the morning by hand with wheat that was brought in by the horses and yeah just beautiful and Sarah um, milking the cows and making huge cheeses and welcoming like I said 5,000 people a year without any expected exchange of capital Um, just blew our minds away and opened us to this reality so that was the arc and we were there for um the first visit was two and a half months. And then we uh, went back to the United States to get married uh, and had actually was offered on that trip a $100,000 to start a project like the Ark. We came back to Oregon, super excited. We did a presentation and so many people came. And afterwards, over seven people came up try- crying like, it's happening. Oh, my gosh. And we had some money in hand to start it. So we we're going to start it in Oregon. And this is the part of like inspiration. And then what happens when reality sinks in, it's really scary. Like Sarah and I are often taking risks and then terrified and persevering. It's not this just like everything's opening. There's times of great disconnection and great confusion. A few days later, I literally after that presentation, I was like, the re- this this particular revolution is happening. There have been plenty, but this integral. And then I started to get the phone calls. People who said they're 100% in were like, well, are we going to be uh, working with the codes in in Oregon? Or are we really like if someone homeless comes and is causing trouble? Like People had all these fears coming up. And so for another eight months, I met, we Sarah and I met with over 100 people from all over the West Coast. And each person had some piece like, you know what? I don't want to do gift economy. Or, you know what? I don't want to do reparations. Or, you know what? I, 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 I don't want to do no cash crops. So... In the end, Sarah and I were in this wrestle. Do we like compromise or do we just hold what we saw and felt and we decide to hold? And then we ended up after eight months, we left Oregon back to the ark, realizing we had to be apprentices of something that had been going on for 85 years. And a lot of the people in Oregon, it's like this heartbreak where they're like, oh, stay, we'll do it. And we're like, you know what? It's this challenge of um, words versus action. And there's a lot of beautiful words and intentions. And um, we took a freight boat back. Um, I had that the, coming home. I had sailed home, which is a whole nother adventure. 50 days on a sailboat, almost sinking. And I had committed to come back by wind. And 
So Sarah and I returned to the Ark and then our apprentices, which was super healthy for us. I think a great lesson for especially Americans is to like humble yourself to someone's wisdom. Um, and there are 85 year olds there, Therese and Lakai, that had like been part of the underground movement against the Nazis and in, in uh, World War II, like Therese tells stories where she's delivering secret messages in the French underground and like biking and then a plane comes and is shooting at her, like incredible witnesses of, of love and peace. So we mentored and then after a year realized the thing missing for us at the Ark, uh, incredible mental, brilliant people, strategists, they, they blocked GMOs, they did some of the largest nonviolent direct actions in French history, both on uh, behalf of uh, North African um, communities in the Algerian war. And so they mental, spiritually, people doing amazing yoga and prayer and meditation and physically incredible, the most incredible skill, everything made, everything in your room made by hand, incredible <coughs> crafts. The emotional realm was interesting and we felt like that because of the French and kind of stoic Western Europe culture, really, they weren't that open to nonviolent communication or trauma work or somatic healing. Um, so we were really missing that. We did it a lot with the apprentices and offered that work, but collectively, they just felt like this isn't our piece. So even though they were integral in healing self, healing connection to other, healing connection with nature, healing connection with spirit or the mystery or ancestors, they were healing it in three ways. And of course, emotional work is happening, but it wasn't a priority of, I never saw, I, I got ashes for my friend, another friend who overdosed in, um, from my hometown and their parents sent me his ashes. And I opened up this envelope and they said, he always loved you, even though when you made your choice to stop using substances, you were kind of distant and he wanted you to have some of his ashes. And I just start weeping in the mail room and three of the ark in their home woven clothing men were like, what's the matter with you? Like, what, what's, you know, they thought it was like a sign of weakness. That was just opening, wa open wailing. And um, they were, it was more seen as, a, as an issue. And that was an example of just, there wasn't an opening even for me to be emotional and be like, they didn't know how to like just sit with me. Um, some of the um, women in the ark definitely could hold that space. So that's an example of what was missing. So that's when Sarah and I, after a year, was like, well, we don't feel ready, but let's set up a prayer. We're war tax resisting. So we didn't have any, um, we didn't have any resources at all. And um, we put up a prayer. Sarah, by choice, we became pregnant and we just held hands and said what we were looking for, a place that, you know, we had the kind of criteria. We just spoke spontaneously and um, also... Just ask, like, if it's ready, we'll go anywhere in North America. We're ready to, like, live this, take this vision. Um, we might have stayed longer, but the Ark was also splitting. It's a whole nother story and modernizing, and the, our mentors were leaving. So it was also kind of when we really looked deeply, just like when uh, we decided to leave Missouri and come to Maine, it just was on many levels what made sense. So the next chapter is us heading to the Possibility Alliance, but I wanted to stop if any questions arose about the quick sharing about the ARC. I, I guess my question is, why do you think that there are so few places like the ARC that exist and even the ARC itself um, modernized and disbanded? And 
um, and even the Possibility Alliance in, in Missouri as it was, was around for a bit and then it ended and nothing immediately took its place. And so why do you think there's yeah so few places that are around in the world like the Ark? Yeah, I, I think there's many reasons. Um, one thing I think that um, we are dealing with addiction to modern society. Uh, it, there's amazing gifts and tools, but there is a high cost to our, our global economic, military, industrial, white supremacist system. And so um, so that's hard to like break that. There's also it's hard enough to go for your dream or your heart's vision without having to think of how am I going to do it without money? How am I going to do it without the computer or flying? And I can totally understand how that just overwhelms people. I got uh, some dear friends who are doing work, international work with nonviolent communication. They said, yeah, I really get this attempt to really be in natural law and trying imperfectly to live this out. But so many people would use the quote, like, if I tried that, I would be ripped to shreds. I literally, there's already enough with, uh, you know, what we've inherited from Western society, loneliness, depression, self-doubt, self-hatred, like all things that have not, are not our fault at all. If people are listening, such he- healing is just to say, like, it's not me. And a lot of people love me. It might be your parents or your grandparents or your friends, but we're all, again, beautiful people in a system that isn't giving us fully what our human spirit needs. So there is... um. I think that's one reason we don't see it as much because it just takes a lot of energy and it risks total mental breakdown. I mean, Sarah and I have been on that piece at times and it's affected our relationship and it's a lot of every time you turn, you're trying to keep this vision happening. Um, A second piece is I feel like, you know, the ARC, when it was going to disband, a lot of people there was this huge gathering because the ARC had 25 communities at its peak and hundreds of people came and shared why the ARC was so important as it was. And it was that this we need diversity. So the ARC was the only project known of its kind in Europe. And it doesn't make it better than all these other projects doing refugee work and nonviolence and uh, using the computer or flying to an area to help in a war zone. But it created more diversity. And so because if you go into a forest, I I do forestry, if you see only one beech tree in 10 acres, the beech tree isn't superior to the oak or anything, but it becomes, and again, a more precious witness because there's only one of them. You're going to protect it. A forester never cuts down the few species in hopes that it. So diversity is such a key piece. I mean, all the social justice revolutions Canvas says the two indicators of a successful revolution is diversity and numbers. And that's diversity, not just of diversity of, of ethnicity, but d- diversity of sexual orientation, diversity of belief system. So um, that was what people thought. But a lot of people felt like to stay relevant, we have to modernize. The amazing thing, once they modernized, they went from 5,000 visitors to under 1,000. So their uniqueness, similar to the PA in Missouri, I'm like, it's not that we're doing anything great. It's just people are like, oh, if I can't visit the PA, is there anything else like it? And we're like, no. So we got so many people. If 10 other projects tried that integral approach, I bet a lot of visitors would choose to go to the other one. But there's not the choice. So I believe uh, that's another one is this, this, this actually myth that to be relevant, we have to be doing exactly what everyone else is doing. And... Um, 
I, I think that hurts our mapping of, 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 of human diversity. Um, yeah, those are some reasons why I feel like it, it's, it's not as common. Um, I think it's going to become more common as we're looking down the uh, climate change and economic injustice and we're being failed by colonial capitalism is failing us, the healthcare system is failing us, the educational system is failing us. And so we're, we're going to, I just think we're not, we're going to have to learn to be really savvy and thrifty with what, what is, what is left. So on a big picture level, what is it that differentiates the ARC and, and maybe even the Possibility Alliance from other well-known intentional communities like Dancing Rabbit or Twin Oaks or Earth Haven or Findhorn or Tamara Peace Project? Yeah, that's a good question. I We live next to Dancing Rabbit and Red Earth and Sand Hill and so many amazing people and so inspired by their work. I think a big difference, which again, there's strengths and weaknesses, is that the unified vision so the ARC had a really unified vision around, yeah, when we live here, we all participate in social justice work. We all participate in hosting people who are, you know, a woman who is schizophrenic from the streets was welcome. Everyone's welcome. Any pilgrim is welcome and has a room and food. That there's a real um, shared vision and theory of change and strategy to carry it out, which is a strength because it unifies people and you can with just a handful of people, the possibility lines, we created a lot of ripples because we were unifying. Like if you have all these lights pointing out, that's beautiful. And when you combine lights into one, you have a laser, which isn't better or worse. It's just can go through a wall. Um, so that's a big difference is that the arc and the possibility lines has a really um, a vision, which for some people are like, well, it's limiting. And other people are like, well, it's beautiful, but it's not for me. Uh, Dancing Rabbit, for example, because I spent more time there. A lot of beautiful people. And some people are meditating. Some people are doing emotional work. Some people are um, creating wonderful platforms on the computer for change and conversations. And even when I talk to members, they're like, yeah, we're not unified as a whole on what our mission. Some people can do activism, inner work. Some people can grow food. So that also has gift of diversity. And some people love that potpourri. So um, I think that's the core difference. Potpourri. No, <laughs> sorry. Hey, there's something that's funny about you saying potpourri. <laughs> I meant to say, is that the right word? For I like, have no idea. No, it's... um. Poopery? No, no, no. It's... Uh, what's the word? Like smorgasbord. Yeah. <laughs> smorgasbord. <laughs> of choices. So, yeah. And there, again, strengths and weaknesses to both. I think at this time a few more laser beams would be helpful because there's things unraveling and we need unified parallel systems to have all laser beams would be just as limiting because having a lot of light bouncing off is also useful. But um, I think those strong mission based projects are less common from my experience. And everyone has a beautiful mission, but that really strong, like uncompromising, which again has strengths and weaknesses. I also think the ARC and our project, uh, the Possibility Alliance and everyone who helped form it, had a mission and then people came into the educational mission and so it wasn't an intentional community first and that's a big difference. Some are like, we're gonna be an intentional community and then we're gonna do this 
we were like, we're going to do this, and then a community forms around it. So it's two different ways that those things happen that I see. Got it. So just to clarify, the possibility line started as an educational center that um, expanded or, or maybe morphed or transitioned into an intentional community. Yeah. But that was secondary. Got it. Yeah. Great. So maybe that's a perfect segue to the PA and the next chapter of your life. Yeah. So um, Sarah's five months pregnant. We um, said goodbye. It was a little bit heartbreaking when we drove out of, uh, we're on our bikes, biking out of the ark. And we had dinner, uh, we had lunch with our friends at La Flessiere. There's three communities on this 400 hectares of land. And as we're biking out, um, there was a power drill going through the stone wall to put in electrical. Um, and again, for us, they're, they're still doing beautiful work there. And it was just this kind of metaphor of like, we left it, it was huge like 10 foot drill and we said goodbye and left with love and biked and Robert who is my core mentor at the Ark he left because he was really wanting to hold the original vision um, he said this is beautiful Ethan like the, the Ark is changing and look at the seeds like you're a seed going to the United States we're a seed going to northern France like you have to trust also that all projects have uh, growth and decline it's just of nature forests trees and so when we try to resist just like humans trying to resist dying it becomes psychotic with organizations when we resist the natural flow of growth and decline so i also think just it was its time after 85 years to to do something different and then create these seeds of learning and i like what uh, i think i mentioned carlos Cerveda said like Half of organizations now need to compost and become something new. And the other half need to split and really go into. And I think we need to we think that's failure in the Western mind instead of, oh, this is just the cycle of the universe. So we're biking away. We go into um, get to London and then we take a boat with our friend Katrina, who is one of our uh, Helena and Katrina and Sarah and myself were the four founding members. Uh, we take a boat with Katrina across the, the ocean and then take a combination of biking and training. And we hadn't seen the place. So we arrive at night at the train station. It's below freezing and we're putting our bikes together. And um, where in the world are we? We have now crossed the Atlantic and we, we came to Miami on the boat and then we train up to La Plata, Missouri. And we had put that prayer up and a week later, a friend called who was living in Canada and said, oh, I was just visiting my sister-in-law. I think I found that l the place you were talking about back in Oregon when he knew us years ago. I hadn't heard from Gary for so long. He called in France and said, yeah, there's this 80 acres. It's Amish. It's mixed. It looks perfect. And that was a week after the prayer. And we're like, okay, we put it out and within three weeks raised the money to get it and just said, we're going for it. We committed three years to see what would happen to our donors. And then so we bike in and we, um, our friend who had visited left some food. We couldn't find the food. Sarah's starving. It's 11 at night and we find the food. And then we had to wake up in the morning to see kind of where we'd been betrothed in a sense, our relationship to the land in Missouri. So yeah, we wake up and it, it, it began. The Possibility Alliance was named and we started with uh, five core guiding principles 
and they were um, necessary simplicity. This idea that um, the av- if we brought the whole world up to the average American, we'd need three Earths, and we know we can't create another Earth, so we all have to um, take pathways out of this empire that's uh, destroying ourselves and the world. And our second um, practice was service, which has two prongs. Is uh, One is serving serving what we are seeing the world we want. It's like going to the public school like we did in Missouri and saying, hey, we want to do a food forest with the fifth grade and they can maintain it and eat fruit. Or, hey, we're going to grow food for the food bank. Or, hey, we want to X, Y, Z. So that's one form of service, uh, community uplift. And the second one is serving others' vision. So we would work with the university or the food bank and just say, okay, you want us to do X, Y, and Z and just really building a bridge. I think being clear about what form of service you're doing is important because uh, one is just helping the community. The second half really helped our relationships with the Plata because we went in and didn't push like, hey, you should have solar on this or you should be doing organics. It's like, yeah, let's first feed those who need food. And we don't see many people offering organic chickens to those who are hungry, you know, but there's plenty of other people offering food. The third one was um, celebration, silliness and gratitude, which we ended up calling sing praise. And that was just knowing that we also wanted to enjoy we would have water olympics with 50 people at our pond and we would dress up as superheroes and go on service trips to like after hurricane katrina and work in the ninth ward um, with amazing projects so we also wanted to practice gratitude and celebration so the fourth was um self-transformation we called it which was like our inner work healing our own racism our own patriarchy our own fear our own trauma um, shame, resiliency, all those things. So um, that was the, in the fifth was activism. That to be in our little white community, even though we're doing useful things, it was really important to go out into the world and show up in Ferguson and Standing Rock and all these other moments of history, uh, the water turn off in Detroit, to be there. Um, and then we all function in the gifts, so there is no exchange of capitalism for visitors are coming people could come and be fed and and uh sheltered and um and then the 20 percent, which started as some of it was reparations and a few years in all any gift we got if we got a hundred dollars twenty dollars went directly with no strings attached to communities led by people of color uh indigenous by um people of color just a wide range of different projects so that was how we started so one of the questions that comes to mind is just what does a week in the like, <laughs> what does a week in the life of the Possibility Alliance look like? Um, you know, there's all these different values and visions that are all merging and intertwining. And so, how does that actually, what does that actually look like on just an average typical day at the Possibility Alliance? Yeah, I'm gonna pull from just in the middle of our 12-year experiment, six apprentices, five core members. Or long-term members like five years seven years and our daughters and roughly about a thousand visitors and that's kind of like at, at our peak where we would be functioning at so a week would a, look a like thousand visitors over the course of a year yes Not, over the year okay. yeah so they would be maybe 10 or 20 people there for this week so let's say we're doing a, a experience week so they'd be 
20 people coming in to live with us on the land. Uh, Monday, they would be arriving. We wake up in the morning. There's usually, uh, what we just have morning silence, uh, half hour to an hour, depending on the year, where people can come and pray, meditate, journal, do yoga. We felt silence was like a place where all traditions and non-traditions could be honored. Someone could be sitting there writing in their journal. Someone could be looking out the window at the birds. Someone could be praying and all was welcome. So that would be the bell would ring in the morning and people would show up for those practices. And then we'd have uh, joyful responsibilities where after that time, people would go out to whatever system they're linked to. Someone might pick mulberries. Another person would be milking the cows. Some would be milking the goats, making goat cheese, collecting the chicken eggs, um, just kind of all the basic um, morning relationships. And then uh, then we'd welcome the visitors and there's kind of a flow to the week where we'd be working on the land. But in this particular case, a group of us could be planning to bike in, like one, I'm just picking a random week, and biking to the train to go to Kansas City to do a direct action against the expanding nuclear power plant that's going to be both affecting mainly in the area where there's poverty and also nuclear war. So four of us are going to plan to get arrested. Um, Tuesday would come and it'd be work on the day. We'd be calling in to share what was happening at the, here's what's happening at the uh, nuclear weapon building site. And then Tuesday afternoon was always a well-being meeting, sometimes Thursday where we have an hour and a half where everyone can share where their heart is, where, where their joys and challenges are. And then Wednesday, uh, again, a week, certain people will be working on the land, people doing hand tools to build straw bale, people putting in food systems, wild edibles. Meanwhile, the service arm is happening. So people were biking into town to help. We help rebuild this local theater so there could be a public a presentation for La Plata for both high school and music and so we're scraping and helping to, to build this hall so doing a service arm and then Wednesday night was always soul time where we'd have someone from outside come to speak say this night Axel Fuentes came and spoke about the plight of immigrants in Missouri and Milan and so we'd have someone from the outside come a professor or a activist organizer and we'd all learn uh, directly and then Thursday would come around and um, there may be, we also serve the neighbors. So we might be going over to the White Rose Catholic Worker or the Peace and Permaculture Center and going over with 10 people to help plant 50 trees in the morning while maintaining the land. Friday turns into a celebration mode, the end of the week where we're planning a huge feast Friday night. We share our joys of the week and sing. It's, it's a it's definitely influenced by Shabbat, just that coming to that time of rest and uh, beautifying the land, which we did at the Ark, like putting everything away. And then the weekend is open for live music. And a lot of Friday night, we would do porch night, which invited people from all over the area to bring a skit, a poem, a play, music. And we would, as a community, be responsible for our entertainment, for our food, for uplifting people who don't have an opportunity um, so that's kind of the rhythm. The weekends would be free. And then we really required like if anyone needed it during the week to rest or revive um, in whatever they might be needing. At the same time, we would also be often living with at least one person coming out of addiction from crystal meth or having struggle with suicidal thoughts. So we often 
incorporated that into our work of the week is making sure we were um, imagining tons of small-scale systems supporting people in need instead of these huge institutional systems that don't actually really meet full human needs. So all that would be swirling um, in a week. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are thinking what I'm thinking, which is like, that's amazing. Why aren't we all living in this way? <laughs> like, So why aren't we all living this way? Well, I think a big thing for us is, you know, through the, we had over the 12 years, about a, over a hundred long-term visitors. That was like six months or longer and over 10,000 visitors. And we, Sarah and I, one of our blind spots as we evolved, um, the, a few more principles started to come in. And one of the blind spots was realizing we all have trauma, every human being. And, and the legacy burdens we talked about earlier, we have trauma from genocide of indigenous people, from slavery. We also have trauma from uh, generational trauma passed down. Um, and we haven't healed at all. So our belief system started to come. If we don't address that trauma and heal it, we're always going to have conflict in community because once uh, a wound is hit, you have a reaction. And when you're traumatized, we can't see what's happening clearly. And this, um, we started to bring in more things like restorative circles out of Brazil. And still, I think one of the big reasons is we still don't know how to live together. Um, and because of industrial society, we can function not having to live with each other. Um, which has some benefits, but it has a high cost of our number one human need in some studies is belonging. Um, so I think for me, that's the number one reason is conflict. And I, I, I don't know any community project that hasn't, um, you know, the stats are one out of 10 visions, whether it's a permaculture center or it's a um, food garden in the, in the inner city to, to, to combat food deserts or to bring food into areas that don't have access. The number one, uh, one out of 10 actually become real. And the number one reason that is a conflict, one out of 10 of those only last five years. And the number one reason is conflict that it unfolds. And then they say only one out of 10 after five years is actually functioning well, looking at patriarchy, race, privilege, trauma. So that's one out of a thousand. So any project, if we could name uh, Twin Oaks or um, Soul Fire Farm or, you know, so many projects that have made it through the five years and are dealing with those issues. It's like, in a sense, it's m miraculous to, to, to have community. Um, it takes a huge amount of the Sangha. I think of all spiritual tradition is like we in community, you learn if it's a healthy community, you learn your greatest gifts and you also learn your most brokenness like it's it's really less complex to live in an apartment with a dog even though an animal can be a great companion but the dog is never gonna be like i i don't actually want to do it that way you know, might chew on your couch but <laughs> you don't have to like sacrifice your vocation the other piece is a, a, a thing of the pa was it became so land-based heavy and that there was a few moments in the 12 years where I feel, really felt like there was a balance. So people would come and be like, this is 70% of what I want or 80%. But after a couple of years, there was something that, that wasn't more work for helping heal the wound of, of you know, uh, indigenous 
uh, justice and sovereignty. So as an example, so I think um, that's some of the reasons why it's difficult. Um, and I think we need to learn, learn that to have the beloved community. And that's just like difficult for white people. And then as we continued in our experiment, we added um, sharing was our six and seven ra racial justice and gender justice was number six. We, we, we kept people who are really compassionate would share like there's really uh, heteropatriarchy playing out here and we would be held and do trainings and realize that without gender justice and looking at all the structural systems and then racial justice as we started to do more work in the Latino, Latina and black communities and, and indigenous communities, that that was key for the beloved community. Like it had to be that synergy and sharing added that part of sharing was the give back economy was giving back what, what, had, what has been stolen and sharing we realized we're not just sharing money. We're just saying, here's our home. You're welcome. No one was ever like turned away. Nothing was ever locked. And we just tried to have that open space and who came was, was, was sacred. Um, so we kept evolving and we're, we're continually evolving now. So we, those 12 years continued with those seven principles. Um, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. We also helped a big part of our project, the Possibility Alliance, which I think was our one of our greatest gifts that I feel in the 12 years was we took a lot of time to help other projects happen. And some of them were sister projects of the PA. People who lived with us for a year or two, like, I got to do this in Reno, be the change. I got to do this in California. Um, Loving Earth Sanctuary. I got to do this in inner city, Kansas City, um, Shade Tree Collective. But we also helped um, lots of projects, including the yet to be named network, which is a place of reparations and climate justice and um, the community university garden and uh, just a huge range. Uh, I, I would say I'm looking at the list here of projects that we helped fundraise and help come together. And there's like 50 projects that that came out that we were helping from like a, a gift economy uh, restaurant, um, Take Root Cafe that we helped from the very beginning and raise money and now anyone has a wonderful meal that they can come eat from local farms right in Kirksville, Missouri. So I think that was one of our great witnesses is that when we, like with our reparations, you take 20% of, imagine if every nonprofit was cycling 20% back, how much would be moving to take care of classism and, and, and racism and what would happen if every nonprofit took 20% of their human energy to help another project be birthed? You know, I just can imagine the small project help midwife um, mutual aid and, and co-create all these amazing projects. Because a student would come and say, hey, we really want to do this um, amazing project of food forests. And we're like, okay, great. Here, here are trees. Here are, oh, we want to do this inner city garden for food justice great come and take whatever you want from our nursery and perennials and and we'll help fundraise and so i just think the dynamic energy of when we sh like water when we move it through the system we're we're underestimating how that ripple would change society beautiful it's super inspiring and hopeful and um yeah i feel really energized and i also have a part of me that that really wants to go back to something you said earlier which is um i think it was one out of a thousand projects are 
still around and functioning from a place of air quotes success after five years and or health i would say healthy like functioning in a healthy way where they're dealing with structural systems and healing from oppression and in healing you know that a lot of projects are still around and including ourselves, you can be replaying systems that aren't making the world you want to make i see so you're saying one out of a thousand projects it's not that only one out of a thousand projects exist after five years it's that one out of a thousand are healthy from your subjective point of view or yeah so and this is i i don't know where this list came from an article studying communities or projects it's yeah so it's one out of ten that have a dream actually get a physical place like we have an office in the city or we have this land or we're doing this refugee work and then one out of ten of those that land last five years so one out of a hundred that come into existence last five years so that could be a bike path advocacy group or that could be a group doing prison reform from the industrial prison complex and then after the five years one out of ten of those are functioning in a way that they're looking at the intersectionality of how do we position ourselves around issues of race and colonization and patriarchy and internal wounding like for example the arc 85 years amazing but there was this piece of actually being um, suspect of emotion as an example that they're functioning and not that they're not doing great work um, and I don't think we're there you know I don't think we're in the one out of a, a thousand and I agree in a lot of the racial trainings that I've been to they say there actually isn't a diverse project right now in the U.S. that's thriving that has a mix of queer indigenous white it just isn't happening yet and so i feel like that's something we strive towards it's meant to be a to me a exciting piece to say we can do this and let's not pretend we're there when we're not yeah great thank you for clarifying this is probably a whole another episode and and i think we can dive into that in a future podcast but i was wondering just briefly if you could touch on even if let's just take the one out of a hundred so one percent if there's a one percent chance of a project um uh, being birthed into the world and existing after five years uh, like for example i had three conversations yesterday with three individuals about um they all really wanted to start a community and there's this i mean it's just that's what everyone is talking about is wanting to start new communities and new communities and so but when i hear that there's a one percent chance basically of the community still being around um there's parts of me that think that's kind of insane to just put all my time and energy into something like that if it's a one percent odds and maybe i should um just pair up with a another project that's already existing to help kind of um strengthen that yeah um but yeah so i have very different parts of me that are um are confused and are wondering what you would say about all this we've been blessed to like be on boards and advisors to lots of experiments ranging from inner city Atlanta project that is led by queer black folk and have some white friends that are part of that core group or West Coast Recovery Project after Hurricane Harvey, which is a mix of black and white, you know, just such diverse projects. Um, And the one out of 10 is still beautiful because that's all those people got together to dream. Those dreams just don't disappear. You hear them and it generates, starts generating the new world. It's like the idea has to come and then from that idea is birthed. I mean, look at Black Lives Matter. 
the rising in after Michael Brown's murder and other murders uh, of black people, it seemed like Black Lives Matter kind of quieted down a bit. But it was just this there was this beautiful vision in their platform that permeated, you know, even when it quieted down, I was reading the platform and so moved. And so those were taking hold of people's psyches and hearts. And so when George Floyd was publicly uh, murdered, that it comes back, you know, it's in the next wave is so much more powerful. And so even for those nine that don't take hold or have the pulse of like increase and decrease, it's still precious work. It's precious work to uh, do bong. You know, I'm thinking of me doing bong hits my first year of college and staying up on night being like, we're going to end all, you know, corporations. And like, <laughs> and some of those friends in the circle are part of big corporations, <laughs> but, but there's a seed. So that work is precious. So it is important to not see that as like you failed. There's no failure or success. It's all you keep experimenting with life and, seeing what happens was the dodo a failure of evolution or the comet hitting the earth and eliminating the dinosaurs no it's just life continually experimenting and emerging so the second part is most projects that i know have lasted even if they don't last five years for example i've watched several community experiments here dissolve and one was four months people so excited and they got there and then conflict happened but there was incredible learning so this is important to realize those people are going to be ahead of the next experiment and be wiser. Um, I was just on the phone right now. We're planning to try to l launch an a alternative to college that addresses racial issues and climate change and really gets people's vocation. And a bunch of the people on the call were part of forming the national yet to be named network activist reparation movement. And we already learned so much of that. We're like, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to do that again. So there's an incredible learning that's happening. So I think people are more and more primed. And with this time happening now, as other systems are dissolving, this, I think, is the time to get together in circles and dream. If it doesn't come into a physical place, you're still helping to manifest a vision that sits and seeds in everybody. And if it lasts under five years, you're going to have incredible learning. And a lot of those projects that dissolve, those people do something else that then sticks for the five years. Um, so it's all sacred work. It's just to know if I if I if I think, oh, I'm just going to hike over to those that field of flowers to make a community. And that's what I see happen is people have kind of a what I call magical thinking. They don't realize how hard it's going to be. And then they give up. But if we know like this is like hiking Everest, then we're prepared. We have all of our stuff like there's going to be conflict. Yes, it always happens. There's going to be things probably around money. There's going to be things around justice and Who's in charge? Is the white hetero male? And what's the responsibility to give space? And so if we're if we're preparing for Everest, there's a greater chance. And I think that's the shift that I would like to see is people really being like, hey, if I want to go into the front lines, I need to train for four months if I'm going to be effective. If I'm going to start a community or a project or I'm going to have to prepare. If I'm going to do a project that has great diversity in it of viewpoints, I'm going to have to do a lot of inner work to be able to not replace white fragility and tone policing. So that's where I, the moment we're at was like, let's do it. People can do it for these huge corporate, you know, work. I have some friends who are working 16 hours a day working on Wall Street and they're like, give it all. I'm like, can we give it all to this new world? So, yeah, really beautiful and well said. Um, 
I just have a quick follow up. There's one part of me, you know, maybe this is the jaded part of me that lived in Los Angeles for five years, but it seems like in America specifically, everyone is trying to be an entrepreneur and to start their own project and to have their own vision. And like, it's all about me, me, me in a way. And the community is obviously community that's uh, inherent to the, to the very nature of the project. But still I can, I feel like there might be this, um, sort of Western, very American, egotistical, almost arrogant mindset of like uh, each person creating their own version of utopia rather than kind of sacrificing and coming together for a common good. And so, yeah, I guess I'm curious about what you see as the balance between those two. Yeah, that's a a big learning piece. Um, I do think uh, American culture breeds individualism and... um, and that's like the European influence of that coming in. And so I, I, um, I think a few things we have to unlearn. That is a big piece of it. Unlearn that we're actually your well-being is connected to mine. Um, someone in prison right now because of the color of their skin is like as vital to my healing to help that situation as it is to my daughter in the yard practicing archery. So to see that movement into the age of unity is so simultaneously needed. And I think we also, one of the blind spots of the Possibility Alliance is like moving too far along in succession without following a natural pattern, like the dandelions, the bushes, the trees. And so what we're, what we saw happen, which we kind of resist in the beginning on Frontier Lane is the peace and permaculture formed and then the uh, land trust and then the White Rose Catholic Worker and then um, several other projects uh, Narrow Way Farm and we we resisted it a bit and I wondered if we had really embraced like okay we're all going to live next to each other and have synergy um, I think we have to work with it a bit like right now we're trying to manifest this school right next door and what synergy would have and we've placed ourselves near the Belfast Eco Village and trying to um work towards that while doing the inner work. But I, I do think uh, I saw less of that in the old world Europe. Um, those who didn't decide to go be colonizers and leave everything, there's just a different energy. So I think um, I think that's some deep work to happen. But the, the key piece of the work is undoing the map of individuality and realizing that we we have to We need each other, yeah, to be human. All right, so we are in Missouri. We, uh, the Possibility Alliance is up and running, 1,500 visitors a year. Everything is going really well. Um, What comes next? What's the next chapter? Yeah, so there was, um, you know, with all the joy in, amazing things that were happening. There's also heartbreak. Um, some people left the PA feeling not seen or respected. And we've always tried to reach out. And a lot of that has ended up with healing um, and stay open. But, you know, it was a lot of mix. It's taking on a lot. And um, But at a certain point, I think it was around 2000 well 2012 was this huge drought eight month drought and that's when the new math came out in the rolling stone bill mckibben and then we fast forward to what happened in ferguson like that 
2013 to 2016 was a big shakeup for uh, the possibility lines. We spent a fall um, just all crying, realizing that, wow, we've always lost half of life. We're in a sixth extinction. Everything's accelerating. Um, white supremacy is alive and well. And then you come into the election of Donald Trump. All these things were were really tearing at us and realizing how how we work effectively in rural Missouri. So that's where I think the question came of like, what's the next step? The first level was to help try to form this yet to be named network, which is people all over the country, East Point Peace Academy and um, Vine and Fig and Living Downstream Project, bringing these people together say, what can we do to create a peace army that puts themselves to end climate change and also if you're a white member, puts themselves in a reparations paradigm, moving resources and tackling systematic racism um, in the country. So that was like the first attempt. It, it A lot of beautiful things happen and are happening with it. It's about to launch. Um, um, Possibility Alliance is not as fully involved right now. But um, we're realizing that the thirst was deeper. And during that first gathering with about 70 people from around the country, one vision um, was, what if, um, what if we tried to actually shift a whole town? That was an ocular demonstration of, here's how you do it, grassroots, and that could roll. Not just flipping it with climate resiliency, but the marginalized have access, and um, we're acknowledging that whatever indigenous people's land we're on, that we're, reparations are starting to flow on a town city level. So that that seed started to come up and stir, and then um, we went back. I'm from the East Coast, so went back east, and then everyone in the collective just started to feel like something different is happening in their hearts. And so instead of resisting it, we just kind of went with it. We'd just been exposed to emergence and and self-organizing through Swarm and uh, Aini Institute and a lot of amazing influences. So. We really tried to look uh, what was happening. So we brought together, um, then I had these profound dreams, which is a vulnerable place to share. It was winter solstice. This winter solstice will be four years, but I had 40 dreams in 60 days and they were all, each one was a mentor, or some image, friends coming with a tall ship and saying, this is a map from spirit and it's Maine. And, Maine and it was all pointing to Maine and um, I'd spent time in Maine um, working with various projects Beehive Collective was one of them that I was really inspired by and so that all all these things inwardly and exter externally were shifting so that's where we um, took the leap to um, relocate and we came up the coast and uh, were pointed towards Belfast Maine and uh, Dan, who was a full member, was on board at that first visit. And then he be was married and his partner didn't want to be this far away from their family in Michigan. So we just kept trusting. And with the core group, it all was incredibly smooth. There's so much love and transition. So in 2018, it was just Sarah and I and the family ended up transitioning here to Belfast. Dan and Margaret attempted a community in Vermont, which was at one out of ten five year like it didn't get on board after two years and then they 
are now manifesting something in Michigan, but they help bring together a group of people in Vermont that are still envisioning community. And so um, we're, we started to develop four more principles that we felt were essential for the world we wanted to see. Um, we tried, we brought together some dear friends from around the country to try to recreate something new and launch anywhere in the country. And we were together for a month and that ended up not happening. I want to say that one huge thing that I noticed is commitment and perseverance is like such a key piece of what I think has been the gift and at times shadow of the Possibility Alliance is that um, we had a really hard first two years in Maine. It was really I was like, this was the right thing and a lot of questioning and a lot of difficulty in our marriage. And just the last couple of weeks, it's like <clears throat> an incredible indigenous-led project that we help raise money for is going to be 14 miles away. And all these amazing people are, yes, to start this alternative college. And because we persevered and didn't give up, it gives time for just like a seed has to like be underground in the winter and it's freezing and it cracks and is a mouse going to eat it? And you have to like go through this darkness to come to like birth and birth is bloody. I mean, look at, I was at my wife's, you know, my beloved Sarah's and it's just, you could die and people are screaming and there's blood, you know, it's like, that's how it is. And so we also, if we get to trust the, the light and dark as two co-creators of something new. So we, um, we're, we're here in the four principles that came out of that amazing month that we added. One is emergence and self-organizing is like to really emerge in each moment and not have these like set plans that, that's just like set forever. But what's happening around us? Who's leaning up? Who's coming? Who's going? What's, what's inside of us? And self-organizing is trying to move away from uh, consensus or other systems. Um, the second one is we realize that people aren't activated in their purpose. Everyone has a unique divine purpose. They will not be satisfied. And that was one of the weaknesses of the PA. In Missouri, so much was happening. We did focus on vocation, but we didn't have it as a principle. So now we're like, this is the principle. It's like, what's the personal vocation? It's our, to find their gifts and apply it. Whether it's like, I'm an artist and I want to do social active art. Great. Connect with the Beehive Connect Collective. Find out how they're doing. Or I'm a clown and I want to do amazing things. Oh, great. We're friends with Clown Zero in the Bay Area that does social justice clowning. Like trying to activate people's vocation because when you're activated, your passions meet the need of the world. You have unlimited energy. You're just like, this is what I got to do. And so both helping people find it and then finding, and that's what we hope to do at this alternative to college is activate people vocationally. The third is um, beauty and creativity. Um, we have joy and celebration and sing praise, but really... Uh, creativity and imagination and beauty is part of what is is the world we want to see. Um, and then the last one is, we're calling it truth-telling or accept disruption, that studying nonviolent communication, we all thought, oh, if we are white people talking to white people about why we need to do reparations, like we can do it in a way that no one's upset and no one's, and then we just realized from a lot of people's work is like the real work, you're going to be uncomfortable. When we're in the yet-to-be-named network, female-bodied people that identified as women or, or queer or non-binary would always say to the hetero white men, it's like, are you feeling uncomfortable right now? And we'd say no. And they're like, real change probably isn't happening right now. And so we just accept disruption that we, we there's no way we're going to wrestle with 
uh, white supremacy without making people uncomfortable. And just by accepting that, we become more courageous and less attached and more likely to hold the space of people's reaction. Because we can either be like, why are you reacting? You know, this is important. Or, oh, I'm not doing it good enough. You know, white perfectionism. So those are, um, and, and also shifting uh, simplicity uh, more towards pathways that empire and kind of decolonizing ourselves from these modes that feel like we need robots to be whole. Like, where does that idea come from? You know, like. Um, it comes from God. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're, we're um, yeah, we, we've had three apprentices last year and uh, you're here, Tucker, who's been here and now we're in this transition time and um, Yuli and Ella were here earlier for a few months. So we're just kind of, I think the path is starting to open again. Um, and it's really hard to let go. Like, I, I think that's one of the biggest things, too. I think organizations would last longer if they were emergent because they hold on to something. And then it just kind of if we it's really heartbreaking to leave the Missouri and all the friends who moved around us. And Sarah's parents were neighbors and they had to move. And it was a, it was a big risk. Like, it wasn't easy. It wasn't just like, oh, we're going to it was heartbreaking. And people felt betrayed by us. And we're like, we have to follow this. And. And it was very disruptive. And so it's that kind of thing like uh, compost or death and rebirth. It's like we took that risk. And the risk is nothing could happen here. After two years, I'm like, what did we do? You know? But it's just trusting without any evidence what's moving inside our heart um, and coming to us. So, um, yeah, I like this quote. It's um, Doris Lessing says, whatever you meant to do, whatever you are meant to do, do it now. The conditions are always impossible, meaning we, we often wait like, oh, when we get X, Y, Z, we'll be ready. But it's never going to be perfect to just like move in that, you know, we probably should have really my sense is two years before shifted. But it's just like trusting that and in leaping. Yeah. So can I ask a question on that, actually, about it's never the right time thinking about my film career and stuff I, I really I took the last two years off a year and a half off of work exclusively and uh, over that year and a half I kept having all these dream projects like fall into my lap and I felt like it was the universe like God teasing me being like luring me back into this world and to my workaholism and um, I kept resisting and not taking the bait even though they were projects that I I would have been really aligned with um, and I think why I did that is because intuitively I felt that I still hadn't worked through my deepest traumas, my deepest childhood wounds. I still had more work to do. I still needed to go inward, still needed to, yeah, to, to, to work on myself before I can help manifest something new into the world. And that if I did manifest something new in the world, it would probably come with some of the, it would be perceived through the lens of the trauma and all the baggage that I was, the shadows that I was still holding on to. And so I guess what I'm asking is, um, yeah, how have you, have you or what would your advice be to others in terms of like trusting their intuition in terms of when is the right time to, to go inward and work on ourselves versus to manifest something out into the world? Yeah, I, I think community is important to actually have really explicit relationships with people. Even my hometown buddies would say, hey, look, I'm trying to manifest this. Do you want to help? one of our needs is to make someone's life more wonderful. So just say, hey, I'm really wrestling with this. 
calling together. It's very vulnerable calling together a bunch of your community to give advice to what do they see um, that we're and that also creates a world away from separation. But it's vulnerable to to do that. But I find most people when someone calls me, it's like I really want to learn this from you. Like I think of my friend Sean working out in El Salvador right now. It's like I really want to learn these things from you, and I really want to grow in this way. I just feel like it's a gift. Like I get to share, and vice versa when someone will help me or wrestle with me or wrestle with those questions. I do also think with emergence, we have to really pay attention internally and out, out externally co- constantly in a way that's not like overwhelming, but just like sitting in that like, okay, let's see. Because I think of the Subaru ride, the, the vision came in 2004. I was doing out, uh, I was, no, 1994. I was doing outdoor education at Catalina Island Marine Institute. And we did this skit called The If Men, Two Invertebrates and a Fish to like heal the ocean. And a bunch of schools would come like, that's amazing, take it on the road. And we're gonna have actually at that time a van with a shark fin. And we had schools from LA. And so there was a producer who came. And so the, the actual ride didn't happen until 99. And it had many phases soon. It was like biking. and superheroes moved by flying or swimming and so going into that myth so it's also spirits anointed time so we've envisioned this alternative to the university since 2011 when someone came and said we need a two-year nonviolent direct action frontline training racial justice why are we only doing weekend workshops and that was the beginning of the seed then we had the peace and permaculture center that did amazing things but never reached a two-year alternative to college and now this may be the actual manifestation of it and so that's that's nine years later so we we have to I mean there's a balance of going for it and knowing that also there's an anointed time for everything and not getting discouraged um, so yeah it's a there's there, I guess my answer is there's no set rule I, I would say one thing that's helpful is this risk map um, Part of it came from the work of uh, The Three Laws, a book called The Three Laws. But it's that we take a risk for the world we want to see. Healing something, a relationship with my dad, or um, you want to be in better health. Whatever it is, the world you want to see, you take a risk to do it. And there's this arc that if you create the world you want to see, like, hey, I haven't talked to my brother in two years and I'm going to reconcile. And you call and the brother starts crying. You're like, oh, my gosh. It's so great. You create the world you see and there's this ripple. But that often isn't what happens. We take the risk and then you call and it's like, shut up. I hate you. And they hang up and you're like, oh my gosh. So at that moment, you have a choice point. You either go into a default future, it's not possible or that world can't exist because it's safe. If we say it can't exist, it's really safe. You don't have to have personal responsibility. And that's the thing of staying in possibility. It's really excruciating because if I can't do it, I can... That doesn't mean another 8 billion people can't do it. Um, So you have to, this is the map, you have to grieve that you tried and it didn't work. So there's grieving that happens to come back to risking again. It's a risk muscle and a risk muscle is like any other muscle. If you've never biked before, you bike a little bit and build up. From lots of risk taking, I feel like that's what I've done with my life is just strengthen my risk muscle. And so then once you you try it again, you try it in a different way. And I think sometimes when the heartbreak happens with the mountain lion story, grace comes in. I was going to give up and go to default future. 
And then something from the outside came and sent me right back to like, I'm ready to risk again. So it's both internal, external. But I would say for people to like really be watching, where are you on that map? And when you take a risk, make sure that you don't go into the default future um, to really just find a community you can grieve that with. Like, I really tried and this is heartbreaking. And a real life story about this that I witnessed at a training. This uh, guy got up and was like, here's what happened. You know, my, my, when I was young, my parents were divorced. My dad would tell me in Chicago to pick me up and I'd be at the street corner and I'd wait and then he wouldn't come and I'd be hanging on to the post and my mom would come and I'd be crying, he's coming, he's coming. And finally it's nighttime and my mom would have to like bring me into the house. And then I finally just said, I'm done. And for seven years, he cut off all, he called his dad and like, fuck you and cut off all contact. So he's in front of 200 people and he starts crying. He's like, I want a relationship with my dad. And so the facilitator was like, well, why don't you just go call? You can go call right now. And everyone's like, you know, we're all crying because we're all, you know, wrestling with relationships. He comes back and it's like, I call him. He said, after seven years, you think you can just call me up and it'll be better? Like, screw you and hung up. And so he's on the stage crying and, and he's like, well, at first he's angry. And then the facilitator is like, well, what's the world you want to see? Do you still want a connection with your dad? If not, that's OK. If that's the path you choose, that's OK. But the path was like, no, I want a connection. So he starts bawling. This like guy's crying. He's like, yeah, I really want to. And he grieved in front of all of us. And he, after about 20 minutes, he's like, OK, we always like pizza. At the end tonight, I'm going to show up at his door with the pizza. He lived outside of Chicago. And he had grieved. And if we don't grieve, we just piss like he is an asshole. And so then the next morning he comes, I always cry, he comes with his dad to this training. And there you can tell they've been crying all night. And he showed up with the pizza and his dad just like broke through the wall. And then he's like, come. And then his dad was there and we're all like witnessing this miraculous healing. Like this is healing all of us. And sometimes that process might take 20 times. He might have brought the pizza and his dad didn't open the door, but you grieve and then be like, okay, create. That's why one of our principles is creativity and imagination. What else can I do to try to heal this? The white, you know, white community is really wrestling with creative ways to heal all that's happened in the black and queer and indigenous community. Partly it's following their lead and invitation and partly it's us like my friend who just came up with a creative reparations walk. And so we need to keep trying uh, to, to bear fruit. Just like when you're going to have a kid, you keep making love and hoping that, you know, you, there's a part of it that you are in control of and the part of that you're not. And so really figuring out what you're in control of and what you're not, and then putting all the energy in what you can actually control and making sure you're putting those hooks to spirit out and then letting go where you're, you're, you're just not. You can't just be like, you sperm, you're going to make this baby. And it's same energetically, like you want to manifest this thing. And it's like, it's creating life, energetic life. Like you can, in a sense, whatever the action is, make love or make, make this, but the rest is up to grace. You know, so it's like, we think of the metaphor of how all life creates. A seed drops, there's no guarantee, but the seed drop, the tree drops a seed. The rhino mounts itself, you know, mounts the other rhino to try to create life. So, yeah, it's a it's a huge dance. But I, I could do a whole episode just on manifesting and what I've learned and watching people, the joys and struggles. 
Yeah, super beautiful. I look forward to that episode. It reminds me of one of the mantras that's been so transformative for me. Um, that's from the 12 step program, which is let go at God and just mm-hmm. allowing that grace to come in. And when we give up control, um, control of the outcome and let God be God. Ethan, thank you so much for sharing your life journey, the epic adventures and all the ups and downs, the twists and the turns, the heartbreak and the miracles. And I guess I'd like to end this episode just asking what comes next? What are your what are your hopes and dreams? What are your prayers? Uh, what is it that you hope to manifest into the world? Yeah, I um, I guess I wanted to frame it because I realized it was a I think it was a pretty quick shift to Maine. And I realized that uh, one thing I wanted to share before I wrap up is how how we shifted to Maine and how different I'm saying how a lot <laughs> how how different it was and that's the piece of we always framed our project as an experiment that we were having guesses in our heart and also aligning with different people's idea of the world of the beloved community and we would experiment and get feedback and so one large thing we learned in the how is we came to visit and have conversations with people and see what was emerging in the town uh, something we never did in the Plata and we reached out to some of the Wabanaki uh, including Wabanaki Reach and started having conversations of what would it mean for white settlers to locate there who wanted to serve and uplift Wabanaki sovereignty. And so those are huge changers of, of how, you know, how we arrived. So I just wanted to state that as like, I think that's an important thing is we're trying to move into birthing what's in our heart and birthing what the world wants to be. It's not only the what, but the big learning for us is the how we approach it. Are we listening? Are we responding? Are we doing it? You know, what's the motivation? Are we doing it because we'll look better or we'll be good people opposed to, no, I just want to honor what's arising in me and see what happens. So that was a big learning. I think at the beginning of the PA, there was a lot of, we got to do this. And we just came into the Midwest without much conversation in the beginning and that's um that's not as co-creative with the town you're moving to or with the first peoples on the land and so i just wanted to mention that and also how once we landed much differently than we landed in missouri and we had a, a real mission but we just went for it and later came the conversations uh, here we arrived and just started to listen. We, we attended different organizations and groups and would go to hear the Penobscot speak and just really listen and take in what was already emerging and what was the the histories. And um, so that's one thing I thought was very important to share. And that also, upon responding, I think I mentioned earlier, one of the world's biggest fish farms was about to build in the bay and just that was something that we just felt like the ocean's collapsing and I so deeply love the ocean I want to be a water protector and I want to participate and so upon arriving we jumped right into that the little river which is right behind this piece of land 
is where the fish farm was going to be built. And there's all this synchronicity of, oh, we have been brought here to help with protecting life. So it's both the balance of listening and sometimes a, literally upon arriving, people were like, this huge fish farm. And we, Sarah and I just felt, and my, my daughters, we have to do our best. So it's a balance between not just waiting, but listening in the moment something arises, respond, listening, respond. So that's been really helpful in, in the emergence. So what's happening now, uh, two years in, definitely with the dreams and everything arrived. And for me, I was like, what? Similar to Missouri, when I arrived, the first year was really difficult. I had told Sarah, I, I can't wait for the three years is up so we can like relocate. Um, it wasn't an instant clarity of why I'd been there. After three years in Missouri, things opened up and it was amazing. But it's that, that being persevering. And I've had the same feeling in Maine, like, oh, spirit threw a curveball. Like, I'm not supposed to be here because I'm not finding the synergy. And But now uh, Sarah and I both just yesterday had this sense for the first time that we're being led by spirit and we just sometimes you have to wait you have to wait for the seed to come up you have to wait for that moment and so there's a lot of things happening um one of them was through our two years before and now four years of being in contact with the penobscot connected to amazing mentor sherry mitchell who leads healing turtle island and is a spiritual activist and is an amazing uh penobscot um, leader and healer that is launching kinship community a community that is based on healing the original wound of settlers coming and to actually reheal our connection to nature and recreate society as we know it and um, it's a 200 acre community kinship community that is going to be training and healing and doing permaculture on the land and uh, bringing together people from all different indigenous nations and all different backgrounds and diversity. So we had the honor of being invited in to help fundraise and help to help help nurture that incredible vision. So that's ending up 15 miles from the possibility lines and we just feel in our gut that it's going to be a huge shift for this area of just indigenous women leading this reclaiming 200 acres back to the Penobscot and so that's exciting what we were missing is how do we, how do you live rurally and be uh, accomplice to people of color or marginalized and so um, into their amazing vision and wisdom so that is just feeling like that how that our relationship with that happens is going to be a huge um, game changer for for us in, in maine in the world and to be to be in a supportive role for that Lots of other things happening, and this is something that I, I guess it's an invitation to everyone listening is for every one thing that takes root, like the superheroes, and there are nine other experiments that just are still worth something but don't spring up. And so whenever I go to somewhere and there's something compelling, I just ask. So I just went to this internal family systems training, um, trauma healing, and it's one of the modes that's really incredibly effective 
to healing so that we can heal and move in the world. And I saw that it was a beautiful system that was caught up in kind of middle class uh, psychology and like a level one training is $3,000. And I understand in the kind of capitalist mode how that's realistic, but I just felt like this needs to get to the world and this needs to get to frontline activists and these need to get these communities that need the trauma healing. And just why not just walk up to the founder and say, hey, can we have a conversation? And then that conversation leads to, hey, let's do trainings where we'll create the forum and the food and and invite people of color and the black community, indigenous community to get these unburdenings and these these tools as a gift. And so um, Richard has been another mentor is like, yeah, let's do it. And so that's another big thing that I think um, both for the healing when we when we work across diversity, we build the beloved community. Um, and so how that's all going to um, come together, uh, I'm not sure, but that's another exciting thing that feels like an important part of the work in bringing together uh, diverse communities. So, and another thing that just opened up is a bunch of friends who'd been working on the yet to be named network, which is an activist group doing reparations on the national scale. Um, our, a friend just put a down payment on 60 acres that just opened up next door to us. And we've been envisioning a higher education alternative, which is based on vocation and based on activating the gifts in people. And we, within 24 hours, the land came up and they were going to put it on the market. And again, I just made some calls and said, hey, we've been talking about this thing. And it was just the right time. Some, you, if you keep putting it out there, sometimes there's just this coming together that literally it's been waiting to happen. And when you tell people like we need an alternative to the university model, which is putting our youth in debt, which is not most often, unless you have a really remarkable professor, is not giving the tools you need for this uprising, unraveling climate crisis. And so most people are like, yeah, why isn't there an alternative that's affordable, that's land-based, that's vocation-based, that's student-led, that's affordable, that creates pathways for the most marginalized to, to, to come without a, a fee. Um, so we don't know what will happen, but we have three months to raise a certain amount of money, and we already have this amazing core team, a woman uh, who has been doing this in Northampton, the Cascade Center, and uh, another friend who is part of the Cultural Catalyst Network. And so already an incredible team. So we're going to help nurture that and having uh, alternative college that basically is for the great turning, is for healing these historic legacy burdens of slavery and consumerism and activating each individual with their gifts into the world. So lots of exciting stuff. And I'm guessing that there's going to be synergy between all of them. And with the uprising, just again, responding like it's the time in Belfast. We're in two weeks. We're bringing together people to start a reparations uh, committee to actually try to have reparations on a town level, like the entire town of Belfast businesses in the city participating in reparations to 
the Wabanaki people. And again, just going for it and and seeing what happens. I think um, one thing I would say at the possibility on the tour is we, you know, one of our mission statements was the up, upliftment of all life. So it's very bold. But again, when people say, oh, you're a megalomaniac or a savior, and I'm like, actually, no, I just, I, that lives in my heart, you know, to like, what, what, what can I uplift in the day? Whether it's the plants here that have no chemicals or pesticides or whether it's uplifting a, a black-led project that, that's going to help heal what's happening in the cities. It's, so it's vulnerable to start speaking, like when Rumi says, like, let's together with our beloved, like, try to uplift all life and we will be filled with such sweetness. I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but just, just that that's what life wants and it, it's vulnerable especially as a white hetero male in these moments which I know it's important for us to be aware of the space we're taking up and how to um, keep giving the gifts in a new way so they're not recreating old patterns of, of power over but it's so yeah so it's so important but I always say that okay upliftment all beings possibility lines what's the chance of us doing that point oh 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 three percent great if we don't go for it the probability is zero and then the if every human being goes for the miraculous what's point oh 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 three percent times 300 million americans or eight billion people we've got like a five thousand chance five thousand percent chance of success if we all actually go for it the synergy of all those percentages crossing and the synergy of 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 grace that it's a done deal um in some studies of revolutions they say 3.5 percent of the population of any population fully active can transform and renew society so yeah that's really exciting and i think that's why it's no longer about saving the world it's about how to how to how do in one day the people here on the land uplift, including ourselves, as many uh, lives as we can? And how do we reduce harm and learn and grow? So anyhow, that's where we're at now. And we're going to keep experimenting and take every opportunity to lean in and to ask and invite. And again, the reparations piece may be the one that takes off and creates something in Belfast that spreads around the country. We don't know. Uh, could just be that, you know, Sherry Mitchell and the other Penobscot Passamaquoddy women have this vision that this 200 acre uh, land trust sanctuary led by indigenous women would be the first of many spreading through Maine. And so, yeah, it's just act and let go. I, I, I like the Bhagavad Gita that says like, the, the real freedom is to act fully for what you want and then let go of the results and just let, let go of the results to spirit and, and then we have more energy. We don't get drained by trying to control. So uh, before my, my, I guess my closing piece that this morning as I woke up felt like this is the piece I want to share. I wanted to just see if there's any questions arising or 
things as we wrap up. No, thank you. I just want to reemphasize for listeners that, um, yeah, it was a rocky road the past couple of years to get to this point of having all these um, potential seeds blooming into flowers. And uh, you were sick with Lyme disease for seven months and were basically bedridden. And um, your marriage was um, was on the brink, so to speak, uh, to a certain extent. And um, yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty about why you even moved to Maine and whether you made like a, an epic mistake in leaving Missouri and your daughters at times are, are saying, why did we move to Maine? Why? I wish I, we were still in Missouri. So I just want to emphasize for viewers that, yeah, there has been a lot of, uh, a lot of twists and turns to get to this moment of all these possibilities now potentially blooming. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. It's just this, these up and downs. And um, as I was saying, as we took on, you had asked earlier, why aren't there more projects like the ARC or the PA in the Western world? And uh, sharing that it's just physically, psychologically, it, it's it's work. And to do what's to do what feels like the beautiful thing in your heart sometimes is heavy lifting. And in that heavy lifting, we grow. So that at times the the we've made a choice so i don't think sarah and i are ever in of a kind of victim consciousness but there's times we're like I, yeah we're we're not able to see eye to eye and and we're in conflict and um and then yeah all of a sudden i'm get a new case of lyme disease and i'm in bed for seven months and these are this is all that's just being human so the overlay of anything it, Sometimes people would come to the PA and think, okay, I'll leave my corporate job and everything and then I won't have problems with my family. I won't have depression. I won't have like overwhelm. I won't get angry. I'm like, well, those things are a given from the human experience and we can heal them and improve, but there's no escape because that's what spirit wants. That's how we're grown. So that's, um, it's kind of relief to like, yeah, this is, this is just always going to be here and and to just again let that emerge and lean into it but yeah there's a lot of moments that are uncomfortable and difficult but i when i look back i have absolutely no regrets and that's a one piece i was going to share is just this idea you just picked up the book five regrets of the living uh five regrets (laughs) well living too yeah yeah that's the new book five (laughs) regrets of the living but on the deathbed they studied like all different people and ages the number one regret, the other four you can look into, but the number one way higher is they looked at thousands of people. And of course, there's many regrets other than the five, but this was the, was on the deathbed. It's like I didn't follow that seed, that dream, that peace. I just was waiting and putting it off or I was too afraid. And that was the number one regret. Like now I'm dying and I, I didn't go for it. And I realized... I'm dead now, so as I'm dying, I, I should have because I'm here, I'm alive, why not? Like in the end, everything, your big house or your bank account, everything's, you let go of everything. There's no, there's no keeping it. There's no certainty, it's, 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 it's mystery. So I think that's important to say. So in it, even with all that grief and struggle, I still know this is the path I chose and something I can keep interfacing with life and something beautiful will come and 
that's a part of me that's like, why am I here? And then a, a deeper self is like, well, you had these dreams and everyone together collectively knew it was time for something different. So there's the tension in both. But with that, uh, the five regrets of the dying, that one of following your dreams, I think it's in, it's it could be cliche, but there's something about um, there's that quote that says, "If I do not follow my heart's vocation, I suffer." Like when we're not in line with our meaningness, there is a suffering. We're we're just talking about Viktor Frankl and surviving Auschwitz and the concentration camps, and he found people who are linked to their unique purpose would have so much more resiliency and he just he named it logotherapy but linking people to their unique purpose and so i want to end with um and of course if any questions arise but I, i always come back to this incredible quote from martha graham some of you may have heard it but it feels like what the possibility alliance is is trying to be about and trying to role model and she was a dancer that had all this she was she is the grandmother of modern dance but while that was all classical and kind of held she'd move her body and no one was supportive they're like what are you doing you're crazy like this is ballet this is traditional folk dancing and she just trusted all those urges and it wasn't easy it wasn't like everyone celebrated her in the beginning it's like oh martha that that's great it was like you are crazy you're not but she just trusted it and went with her body intuition and birthed one of the one of the people who's given credit for birthing modern dance. I'm sure there's many others who are, are forgotten. But she says this, like in her memoir, um, and it really speaks to me deeply. There's a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares to other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep yourself open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction whatever at any time. There is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us so, so alive. And so I just think of that a lot of times with what comes out of the possibility alliance is is just we trust it and we have no evidence and we just keep we try to keep the channel open every day and i think this is a time when we need each person's gifts more than ever the haunting part of that in the grief that lives in me is when she says it's lost forever like tucker you're sitting here and you're never going to exist again and if we don't as a community find your full gift and what that channel is for you it's lost forever and that's that's both heartbreaking and also awakens this kind of lightning bolt urgency of yeah society we've been failing 
We've been failing at finding that in the individual. And we all know when you meet an individual that has found that quickening, there's a life force. There is a like compelling energy. And if we wrestle through all the shame or guilt or comparison, or I'm not good enough or look at them or, and we get the love and support, these gifts can be unleashed. And at this moment of the great unraveling and all that's happening that we can feel in our body from pandemic to species extinction to murder of black and brown people and indigenous people and beloved people being imprisoned, all these things that are happening. We, we need these gifts more than ever. The channel is coming through so that we can create this new beloved community. So I just, I feel like just starting a conversation with your best friend saying like, what is it? What do you see in me? Like, what can I develop? Going up and offering um, with the Black Lives Matter uprising right now, I've been showing up to Portland and showing up to Boston and showing up and listening and walking through the streets for six hours and continuing reparations, but asking and offering, reaching out to the amazing young black women who led this incredible gathering at Portland, just calling and saying, hey, my name is Ethan. I'm from a white-led organization. It's called the Possibility Alliance. We were really moved by what you three young women put together with thousands of people in Portland. We want to support your work. Like, I don't know. I, I had a short conversation. I don't know what will come of it, but just that risk of putting ourselves out there and saying, hey, I, I'm really good at uh, web design. Hey, I'm a really good artist. Hey, I'm good at fundraising. Whatever it might be that it, it could be anything. I'm a good listener or I'm a good risk taker. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who can be in the front lines and a cop can club me because of my kind of rumbling Gloucester. Like Gloucester, it was also a gift that prepared me that violence doesn't scare me or trigger me. So I'm really useful at the WTO when everyone's freaking out and I can climb up between the police who are shooting rubber bullets and the protesters are throwing concrete and stand in between them and just confuse everyone. Like, wait, he's a protester. And then the he's protecting the police. No, he's protecting us. And and I can just laugh, you know? And, and so also our, what seems to be our, our wounds or our heartache becomes our greatest gifts like in the, in the cycle. So it's just an invitation to get one, we need community. So get a community of support to just say, hey, let's unleash our gifts. Have a group that meets once a week and just talks about what is your urge? Let's support it and see what happens. And let's, when it doesn't work out, let's, let's hold the grief and heartbreak and go back to risk taking. And then secondly, look at what people or projects or needs of your community are drawing you. I'm tired of homelessness. I'm tired of Roundup being sprayed in the city parks and whatever it is. And then start asking, go to the city and just say, hey, I, I, I know how to do this or go to that group. It's vulnerable work, but if you keep, I think in that process, which is a really simple process, the miraculous will start happening. And an invitation to call us, we'd like to say we're possibility cheerleaders. And a lot of times people call and they're like, hey, here's my situation, what do I do? I'm like, I have no idea right now, but I'm gonna think about it. But I'm cheering you on, like I'm holding you in the light, like I support you, like you're, you have an, you're a beautiful person and 
even that just like when Helena earlier in the story just threw up her books and was like yes give all your money away let's see what happens just like that can be a game changer like to remember too another sacred role this time is just saying yes to your friends and family's crazy ideas you know just saying that's really scary for me but yes you want to liquidate your money for reparations or you want to uh, climb you know someone just tightrope walked across the the twin towers before 9-11 you know just just for the sake of doing it why don't we like climb up on a huge building and dress up as a giant bird and be like i'm birthing the new society and i'm up here like who knows what ripple that will make if we don't know until you do it so also not blocking that in someone else and saying like that's not possible that's not reasonable or how are you going to make money we also we need that community of accountability and support so yeah let's listen to martha graham and just keep the channel open and and forgive ourselves on the days we can't and just each moment coming back to what's alive in your heart and how do i get support and act on it and that over and over again so i hope everyone can have the joy of connecting and that all the all the blocks real blocks of white supremacy and heteropathy all those blocks can also be just transformed so that everyone again coming back everyone has the opportunity to live their gift you can't live your gift while you're being murdered by police or thrown into jail for the same crime a white person wouldn't go into jail with or you are being sexually assaulted with two daughters i i don't take lightly that one out of three female bodied people in the u.s will experience some sexual assault all of this deep stuff has to be transformed simultaneously. So everyone, until everyone has the opportunity to live their gifts, there can be no beloved community. Thank you, Ethan. Just to note for listeners that we'll probably have an entire episode just on finding your purpose and your vocation and activating that into the world. So stay tuned for more on that. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, one thing is arising is I'm both sharing my story and all the amazing people have been able to see their story unfold, that there's um, something that helps me to have compassion and mercy for myself is each time I would make a breakthrough, for example, as my privilege as a white hetero male deciding, oh, I'm not going to just accumulate stuff and become really wealthy and I'm going to decide to give it away and share. And there's these moments where, yes, I've broken through this like oppressive energy. And then I'm riding as a superhero and a lot of women on the ride are feed, give me feedback that I'm replaying patriarchal structures and taking up space and not listening and being intuitive. And then, so it's in another heartbreak and then I have to work on that. And just to share that it's, it's, it is endless work because we can become more and more human in, in a bigger and bigger vessel of love and to be patient with ourselves. And when we come against that next wall, yeah, just to make sure we have mercy on ourselves to know like, okay, here I am again. Now I'm facing white supremacy or racism or jealousy or whatever may come up, greed. And yeah, so on our journey to live our vocation and gift in the world 
it's amazing energy when we find our gift, but then the gift from inside meets the world. And there's this incredible synergy of healing where the outside is going to refine and evolve your gift to make uh, a passage for the most healing, the most uplifting. And, and it can be excruciating because finally you're like, oh, I've been trained to be sheep and trained to just do this consumer thing. And now I've broke the free and I've got my gift. And then your gift bumps against the structure. That's not a healing structure. It's a pressing structure. So it is heartbreak. And I, I guess the last piece at this time of the uprising and unraveling, how do we also, knowing that some of the struggles in my marriage come from my own internalized heteropatriarchy and work I need to do, and how does Sarah and I sit on the same side of the table, say like, here is the structure. How do we, as a team, undo it and not pit each other against and I think that's the liberating energy of community where in that work, Sarah has internal work. I have internal work. Some of the work is my own work to do. Some of the work is her own work to do. And a lot of the work is our work together to do. And to remember, we're the beloved community undoing these hundreds of years, thousands of years old structures. And it's beautiful work, but we need each other to like make it, make it through the unraveling. Um, so even though I honor anger and rage and all that comes up when you've been the receiver of oppression, how do we get to the same side of the table so we can work together to undo it? I think is a um, big question of this moment. I just encourage us to be, yeah, have mercy on ourselves as we come against those walls and to keep doing that slow, beautiful work of the seed turning and opening and blooming and then bearing this incredible, huge, juicy fruit for all beings to eat. So may it be so. <laughs> bon appétit. <laughs> Thanks for listening to part two of Ethan's amazing life journey. If you'd like to contact Ethan, he can be reached at 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.